Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. Hey man, how y'all doing this morning, Brooklyn? What's going on? I always love coming back to uh, a Piff Brooklyn. It feels like a second home to me. So I love being here uh, with you guys. Why don't you do me a favor? If you could stand up with me and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. get on in this text. I see my time are already running down. Amen. Mark chapter 7. If you're there, say amen. If you need some time, say hold on. All right, that's not too bad. It's not too bad. Mark chapter 7. We're going to read verse 24. Actually, you know what? Let's let's do this. I want y'all to help me out a little bit this morning. I'm going to read the even verses. You're going to read the odd. We're going to get a little fancy. Oh, oh, I forgot we are. We, we, I'm reading CSB. What y'all reading? ESV. That's all right. It's the same Bible. We good. We good. We good. I'm reading verse 24. Y'all, I'm going to start with verse 24. Y'all going to read the odds. I'm going to read the evens. We're going to read the last verse together, even though we might be off a little bit because of the different translations. Amen, somebody. Amen. We're going to be all right. Here's verse 24. This is what it says. It says, he got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. was my turn. I was trying to make sure everybody was finished. (laughs) 26. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she was asking him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. See, we getting it. We getting it. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Let's read this all together. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Amen. Amen. I just want to tag our text for this afternoon, the anatomy of a dangerous faith. The anatomy of a dangerous faith. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful and grateful that we have the privilege to open your word, to hear from you, that we have access. We've been given access to you through your son. That's why Paul writes, what more shall we say to these things? For you gave up your son for us. What can we say but thank you? And so we are a thankful people this morning and pray that you would speak to us through your word. And it's in the name of your son, your precious son, Jesus, who is the Christ. It's in his name we do pray. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 Y'all can sit down. Y'all can go ahead and, and sit on down. The anatomy of a dangerous uh, faith. Um, so, you know, for those that, that don't uh, know me, um, 
I, I uh, married to my beautiful wife, Courtney. She's not here with me. Um, she's, she's, she's back home. Can't wait to get back home to her. But we also got four kids. Amen. Somebody said, mm, I heard that in the crowd. <laughs> Lord, Lord Jesus. It's a, it's a, I got a rambunctious, a rambunctious bunch. Uh, but I love them. That's, that's, that's my squad. But you know, one, one of the things uh, that I make my kids do especially when it's nice outside, is go outside to play. Kids don't go outside to play no more like they used to. Like when I was growing up, you couldn't come inside until the street lights got on. And if you got thirsty when you was outside, you had to drink from the water hose. It wasn't no coming back in and out the house because you're thirsty because you're going to let the cool air outside. And, and, you know, just black households, you just don't do that, certain things. Um, but, you know, one, one of the things that I've noticed is that kids today have been spoiled by on-demand accessibility. You know, you got your Netflix, your Disney Plus, and, and I tell my kids all the time how spoiled they are that they can just turn the TV on and pick any episode of any season of any show that they want to watch. Like, if I wanted to watch something when I was growing up, you had to be sitting in front of the television, or you just missed it. Like, it wasn't no, like, it wasn't coming back on again. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, the interesting thing, though, is like, for instance, like a, 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 a service like Netflix, is they don't even realize when Netflix first came out, there wasn't no streaming option. Like, it was DVDs through the mail. Right, you know how long you gotta wait for the DVD to come in the mail? Like, like you, you know, you could get the one DVD playing, the two DVD playing. If you was feeling a little frisky, you might get the three DVDs at a time playing. But the, the most important part of how Netflix operated when they first came out, uh, the most important part of that DVD playing was the queue. Some of y'all remember that? Yeah, I, some of y'all don't even know what I'm talking. Y'all just looking at me. Because I, I see the youthfulness in the crowd, and they just like, I don't remember nothing that you're saying, Pastor. But, but, but listen, it, you, you, you had to set up your queue. You had to go on Netflix, and you had to decide which movies you wanted to watch, and you had to put them in order of priority on your queue. So whatever you wanted to watch first went number one. Whatever was the second movie went number two. And so when they would send you your DVDs off of your order priority list, and then when you got it and watched it, you would have to mail it back. They sent you an envelope that was stamped and everything. You would mail it back, and then the next DVD on your list would come, right? Yeah, somebody, somebody's like, what? They used to do that? That's crazy. <laughs> listen, listen. Um, you, everything about your subscription was centered around your cue and what you prioritized and the, the movies that you decided to watch or shows you decided to watch did not come outside of the priority that you gave it on your queue, right? All, all, the only connection I wanted to make is that Jesus himself had a queue. Jesus had an ordered priority of who he would engage with his ministry when he came to earth. And so Jesus in his ministry was primarily engaging the Jewish people, his chosen people, those who were the beneficiaries of his covenants of promise. 
And yet when we get to Mark chapter 7 in a story like this, we get to see a sneak peek of God's mission through Jesus touching the world beyond the Jews. And so Mark's account in chapter 7 moves from the idea in verses 1 through 23 of clean to unclean people. And and, and, basically going from that of clean being the Jews to unclean being the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people. And if the proper proper inference from the teaching of Jesus in those verses uh, can be that all foods are clean based on his pronouncement in verse 19, then the lesson to be learned from the preceding verses or the, the verses that come after is that all people are clean. And so this account of this Gentile mother is more a pronouncement story than it is a miracle story, for it shows the inclusivity of God's kingdom. And here's the thing, unlike the opposition of the religious leaders and the ignorance of his own disciples, we get to sit at the feet of this desperate Gentile mother as she teaches a master class on the type of faith that God responds to. I've just got three points, and then I'm going to be out your way this morning. The first is, is this. Dangerous faith is rooted in humility. Dangerous faith is rooted in humility. One of the first things that we see as this story unfolds in verse 24 is that Jesus goes to Tyre not because he's anticipating doing ministry, but because he's looking for privacy. Jesus is not in the region to heal people. Jesus is not in the region to teach sermons. Jesus is in the region because he's trying to escape those things so he can get some private time with his disciples to instruct them, to teach them, to train them, because he knows eventually one day he's no longer going to be around and it's going to be their responsibility to lead the church. And so Jesus wants some time to train the disciples. Unfortunately for him, he's been in this region before. And so people recognize him. They know uh, what he's like. Back in chapter 3, he goes there and he does teaching and preaching and healing. And the crowds were so great and people were coming because they wanted to be healed. And the reputation that he had spread far and wide in the region. And so when Jesus comes to Tyre this time looking for privacy, he doesn't find that. Instead, he finds a woman. This woman hears that Jesus is in the area and, and she has a problem. She has an issue. She has something that needs to be rectified, namely that her daughter has a demon. And you can imagine in those days, she's probably gone through every single avenue that she could use in her earthly power to try to get the demon cast out of her daughter. She's probably gone to friends. She's probably gone to the religious leaders. She's probably gone to doctors. And everywhere she's been turned, she's been turned away. And now the only place that she has left is Jesus. And it's interesting that that the way that Mark describes uh, the the urgency that this woman comes to Jesus is is that that she fell at his feet. It's an expression of deep respect as well as the personal grief over her daughter's condition. Matthew's account even says that, that she continues to cry out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And this is not a one time event. This is her desperation continually over and over and over again, making her petition known, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. You can sense the urgency in her as a mother, seeing her child in pain. Now, the text doesn't tell us what the symptoms were like of the child, but if we look at other texts, when children were 
uh, uh, demon possessed, we, we notice that, that there are times where uh, the, the demon might uh, try to drown them in water or try to throw them in fire. There's a lot of writhing around and agony and, and physical torment as well as emotional and spiritual torment. So you can imagine being a parent of a child, seeing your child going through that and turning everywhere that you think you could go for help and being turned away because nobody has an answer and the only place left to go is Jesus. You know, I'm often convicted about the persistence of this mother because there are times in my prayer life where I, where I feel like I need something from the Lord and I don't have that level of perseverance. Sometimes I pray one time and I feel like, well, well I've prayed for it, so maybe that's enough to hold me over for the next few months until I think about it again. Sometimes I'll be on my, my knees for, for long enough that I start feeling the aches in my bones and I, and I get uncomfortable and stiff from the position and I stand up and say, well, may, God, I got to stretch my legs out a little bit. But there's something about her persistence. There's something about her remaining there in the presence of Jesus until she gets what she wants. Some of us need to strengthen our endurance muscles in prayer. So, so some of us need to stop praying for the things that God has placed on our heart after just a little season of hearing no or hold on. So, so some of us need to be praying for that family member, not just one time, but day after day, year after year. You, you don't know if your prayers will result in, a, in an answer, yes, 10 years from now. Because of your faithfulness, some of us need to strengthen our endurance muscle. But what, one of the things that, that Mark does is Mark, in, 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 in letting us know who this Gentile mother is, he stresses her non-Jewish identity. And it's very purposeful the way that he does it. For one, he, he lets us know, obviously, that she's a woman and therefore one with whom a respectable Jewish teacher would not associate normally based on their culture. She was also Greek, not from Greece, but a Gentile by culture and religion. She was a Syrophoenician, born in Phoenicia. Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman, which means that it gives the inference that she hails from a city that the Old Testament describes as godless oppressors of Israel, right? There's a, there's a tension in that relationship, right? Most Jews would have shared the prejudice that Gentiles were unclean by nature and that the state of the daughter's condition would lend them to being seen as comprehensively unclean. So not only would they be, have been, been considered by Jews to be unclean just in personhood because they were Gentiles, but also ceremonial unclean because of the daughter's demonic possession. And so there, there are a number of things that brings hostility between these groups and creates a dramatic tension in the text. That such a woman chose to approach a Jewish teacher and even fell at his feet indicates either desperation or a remarkable insight into the wider significance of Jesus' ministry. And so she takes a posture of humility, of humble confidence in the face of all the things that should have been natural, cultural, and religious stop signs on her way to Jesus to make a request of him that most likely nobody else could fulfill. Dangerous faith is rooted in humility. Not only that, but it's also dangerous faith isn't distressed by initial rejection. And so as this woman comes and pleads her case to Jesus, Jesus doesn't promise her anything, but not only does Jesus not promise her anything, he also declines her request. 
And so Jesus's apparent refusal to help in a situation of clear need conveys an impression of harshness and insensitivity to this woman. Jesus put before the woman an enigmatic statement to test her faith instead. Because, you know, faith isn't faith unless it's tested. If I could make an observation, not one of you who came in this morning examined the chair that you're sitting in to make sure that it would hold up underneath your weight. You had faith based on prior experience that the chair wouldn't break. You knew that coming in here based on sight, it had four legs, it had a seat back. And even though you may have never sat in, that, sat in that chair before, you sat in other chairs like it enough to know that you felt comfortable putting your, your, putting your trust in that chair. Because that chair, or chairs in general, collectively, for you have had a track record. A track record of you sitting in the chair based on sight and trusting that because it looks a certain way, you can put your weight on it and it would hold you up. Why is it that we trust the track record of the chair more than we trust the track record of Jesus? See, some of the circumstances you've had in your life should have strengthened your resolve in him, but they've left you discouraged or worse, throwing a temper tantrum. And so Jesus and his reply, he casts figurative language that the Gentile woman could grasp. He uses children bread, and dogs. And the children's in this illustration represent the disciples. The children's bread represent the benefits of his ministry to the disciples. And the dogs represent the Gentiles. And so Jesus is making a, his point by way of illustration that worthless food would not be cast to the dogs. In Jewish Palestine, dogs were regarded as scavengers, but in well-to-do households influenced by Greek custom that would have been more familiar to the Syrophoenician woman, dogs were sometimes used as pets. And so Jesus is making an illustration that the children must be fed before the pets. And the Jewish people, therefore, had first claim to his ministry, i.e., they were first on the queue. Now, we don't know if this woman felt offended by Jesus' statement, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, listen, had Jesus called me a dog? <laughs> I don't know. I might have been, I might have had some words with Jesus at the time. But we don't know if she felt offended by Jesus' statement. What we do know, however, is whether or not she felt offended didn't stop her. Because she realized that he had the right to refuse her request. She realized that she had no right to receive benefits from him. And yet, knowing that she didn't have any rights, she still pressed a little further. Listen, listen to this. Because what she cannot demand by rights, she can freely receive through faith. And, 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 and so this woman, even though she hears this, this, what seems like a no from Jesus, she continues to hang in there a little longer. She, she continues to, to press in a little further. The, the no from him doesn't make her run and hide and scream and yell. It doesn't ruin her faith. She, she presses in and says, I know what I heard, but there's something about Jesus that's going to make me stay here until I get what I want. Yeah. She may have hung on to Jesus' Jesus's words and the way that he phrased his response. 
You know, because if you were just listening to his words, it sounds like a no, but there's something about the way he phrases it that makes it seem different than what it actually is. And so she hangs on to his words and the way he phrased it. And listen to what he says. He tells her, let the children be fed first. The word first implies that the Gentiles still have a ray of hope. Because her response says, Lord, verse 28, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So this clever woman catches on to the meaning of Jesus's riddle immediately. If the dogs eat the crumbs under the table, then they are fed at the same time as the children. The implication being that they don't have to wait. Her point was that there be no interruption in his instructing the disciples for all she humbly requested was a crumb, a small benefit of his grace for her desperate need. I, I, I don't know if you guys have ever had dogs around the table or dogs in your home. Uh, I've never owned a dog, but I had a dog in my house for, for a season. And I don't know what it is about dogs, but they always know when it's time to eat. And so when, when it's something about seeing people gathering around a table that gets their heart racing and they get excited because they think they about to eat what you about to eat. And so they'll come up to the table, start sniffing your hand, licking on you, like rubbing on your legs and, and, and all that stuff. And, and as the owner of the dog, I mean, as the owner of the dog, you don't snatch food from your kids to feed to the dogs. Right. And, and, like at best, they get what the kids don't want. I got a four year old. I hate giving my daughter rice because rice ends up everywhere. But guess what? If the rice hits the ground. I don't sweep that rice up and put it on my plate to save that rice to eat later. But guess who gets that rice? A dog. And guess who's happy with that rice that hit the floor? A dog. She's not asking for a catered meal, a full course meal with appetizer, entree, and dessert. She just wants a little crumb of Jesus' power for a little dog. And so the woman did not deny the precedence of Israel. Rather, she just suggested that it did not exclude her as a Gentile. But, no, but, but notice this. Notice how she accepted the unfavorable position of her predicament without it undermining her faith. That the God of heaven could both handle feeding Israel and taking care of her little need. The fact that she would gladly accept the rank of household dog as long as it meant she would get fed. See, this woman, she recognizes Jesus' authority and her dependence on him for her help. And so her faith in what she believed Jesus could do for her had to have some endurance because her faith wasn't depending on her ability to change her own situation. That brings me to my last point. Dangerous faith relies on a greater power than itself. Here's the thing about faith. Faith requires an object outside of itself in which it cannot operate independent of. It is not your faith that you have faith in. There must exist an object greater than your faith with the resources to supply for you that which you can't get for yourself, which is why you make the decision to place your trust, your weight, and your confidence in that thing. Your faith is not the object of your hope. Your faith is the mechanism you use to acknowledge that even though you are powerless, you have an assurance that tomorrow will be better than today. And so Jesus, her reply demonstrated the depth of her faith. 
For he says to her, woman, your faith is great. She was not concerned about merely giving a witty reply. Like any parent, she desperately wants healing for her daughter and will go to any lengths to get it. So the irresistible confidence of the woman that she has in Jesus, it delights him because her, her reply to his question or to his statement betrays her humility and her simple trust in his power to change her situation when all human help have failed. And so Jesus tells her after her reply, Jesus just says, all, all he says, verse 29, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. What's, what's interesting about Jesus's response to her response is that the verb tense describes a completed ver a verbal action that occurred in the past, but produced a state of being or a result that exists in the present. And so the emphasis is not on the past action so much as it is the present state of affairs resulting from the past action. Let me make it plain. Though Jesus never spoke a word of healing, the cure was already complete. And so when Jesus says that the demon has left her daughter, guess what she does? She doesn't insist that he go home with her to make sure. She goes in faith just as she came in faith. She doesn't say, Jesus, I need to see it with my eyes to make sure that it's true. She says, because you spoke that it was true, I'm going to believe it on my way home that when I get there, my daughter will be healed. It, it reminds me of the interaction Jesus had with the centurion and his servant, where the centurion goes to Jesus and says, listen, my servant needs to be healed. He's on his deathbed. And Jesus is like, well, I'll go home with you. And he says, nah, I don't need you to do that. You're a man of authority like I'm a man of authority. So all you got to do is say the word and it'll be done. And here the woman has such great faith that she doesn't need to see her daughter healed to believe Jesus's word. She takes him at his word because she knows that his word has power beyond where he's represented locally. And so the dialogue between Jesus and this mother, rather than the exorcism, remains the focus. There's no account of the exorcism offered and no word of command recorded. The removal of the demon is simply spoken of as an already past event. What's the implication for us? The implication is that God will heal and save the Gentiles. That no matter how unclean or how far away from God they might seem, God's hand of salvation can reach them. And when I say them, I mean us, because everybody in this room is Gentile by nature. The implication is that others might dismiss someone as the wrong race, nationality, or social class, or from the wrong religious background or sexual orientation. But the truth is that none of these things prevents one from receiving God's merciful healing. It's simply put, all of those, anyone who exercises humble faith will receive bread. You know what dangerous faith looks like? I'm going to close and be out your way. Let me tell you. Hebrews chapter 11, this is what the writer says. He says, what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises. You get the idea. Shut the mouths of lions 
quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to shame. Women who received their dead raised to life again. Other people were tortured by faith, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others by faith experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned by faith. They were sawed in two by faith. They died by the sword by faith. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all of these were approved through their faith. You know, I'm a, I'm a really, really huge uh, sports fan. Love basketball. Uh, sorry about the Nets. Um, I'm not sorry, actually. Uh, um, love football. Love baseball. Y'all see too many black men say they love baseball. Love baseball. But there's one uh, sport that my African-American um, culture doesn't really connect with. And it's hockey. Um, and so I, I don't know too much about the rules of hockey. I know you got to get the puck in the net. And by the end of the game, there needs to be more of your pucks in your net than pucks in, in the opponent's net. One of the things that I know is a strategy called the empty net in hockey. And the empty net usually is done by a team at the end of a game that they're losing in a moment of desperation so they can try to tie the score. And what they do is they take their goalie from out of the net and replace him with another player so that they can overwhelm their opponent's side on offense. And because what they're trying to do is they're trying to get as many people on the offensive side of the puck as they can to score before they lose. The only problem is that empty net leaves them vulnerable for an easy score by the opponents because there's nobody there protecting the net. There is no safety net. There is no plan B. If it doesn't work, if this move doesn't work, you fail. When we talk about what it means to have dangerous faith, I like this illustration. Because too many of us move around the Christian life with faith with a plan B. With a backup plan, with an escape hatch. Just in case God doesn't come through the way you think he should. And so this morning, I'm, I'm just here to encourage us, all of us, myself included. I'm just here to encourage us. We need to have some empty net faith. We, we need to sell out in our faith, putting our full attack on Jesus, knowing that if he don't come through, then we're finished. There ain't going to be no plan B. All of the things that I could come up with ain't going to be better than what Jesus will ultimately do. And sometimes what he wants to do is not going to look the way you, you thought it would. Sometimes it's not going to happen in your timing. But guess what? He, he wants us to put his full, our full weight on him, to put our full confidence in him, to sell fully out so that we can have a, a reply like the woman has, that, that even though it might seem like a no or a hold on in the moment, you, you don't let that de deter your trust and your confidence in God, but you keep pressing deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I just want to encourage you, trust him. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, trust him. Whatever you can't see around that dark corner, guess what? He can see it. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. 
Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can place our trust in you. We can place our confidence in you with no other hope because there is no other hope. But the beautiful thing about faith is that you even take the mustard seed of our faith and you grow it beyond what we could have ever imagined. Help us to have confidence in you, not because of our faith, but because you're a big God who loves us, who cares about us. That's why Jesus says, you, you think you have good fathers, but none of your fathers compare to your father who's in heaven. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts, our dispositions would be one of expectant trust. Where we believe you, despite what we see, despite what we hear, despite our natural inclination, that our faith would move beyond that to a God who we know loves us, cares for us, and has all power in his hand. And so, God, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. In the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen.